so, so Matt, you have the same name as Matt Hancock. You went to the same school as Matt Hancock. As far as I'm aware, you've never been seen in the same room as Matt Hancock. Are you actually Matt Hancock? Uh, I think he's a very successful man uh, who's a great credit to the, to the people of Cheshire and uh, to the King's School in Chester. And I'm sure that many people are greatly proud of his achievements, not least himself. Would you, would you wish him well in his future endeavours? I wish him. I, w- I wish him well. <laughs> Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adamsmith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. This week, I'm joined in a double ASI billing with my colleagues Daniel Pryor, who's our head of programs, and Matt Cocoin, our deputy director. This week, we'll be discussing Matt Hancock's resignation, e-scooters, and offshore processing of asylum seekers. Matt Hancock has now resigned as health secretary after images emerged of him embracing an aide in the office with hands, face, and let me say, very little space. Matt, after these accusations, or should I say these, these images came out, was the, the resignation basically inevitable? Was it, was it preordained? Or was there any way that Hancock could have held on? Well, I thought the really interesting thing was the fact that yesterday, or like last week in in, uh, podcast terms, Boris Johnson got it confused in his head when he was talking to media about whether he had fired Matthew Hancock or whether Matthew Hancock had resigned. And there was a strangeness about it that really gave something away. It gave away that Matt had handed in a letter saying he was going, but Boris had heard the news about Gina's appointment, about some of the meetings that had been held in the Department for Health that went against the ministerial code, and the fact that he had spent the past two or three days WhatsApping various ministers, various like behind-the-scenes actors, trying to save his own job, or rather, saying he'd saved his own job before the Prime Minister had had any decision on that. And so it was a bit of a strangeness. Was he inevitably going to go? I think so, because the Prime Minister kind of got it in his head that he was going. Um, and he was given, effectively, that sort of grace that you give to, to, to sort of friends, that you allow them to jump before they're pushed. I, I look forward to some someday, Matt, uh, when you inevitably sack me for for one of many reasons. Because I say, no, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't fired. I promise. I actually, I actually resigned. I wasn't fired. There's a great job at the Australian ambassador's office going that you may be interested in taking up instead. High commissioner, Daniel. He's a high commissioner. He's a Commonwealth <laughs> head of, you know, Commonwealth ambassador. So, I mean, there is that sense, especially Labour's trying to create, of course, Daniel, that while Boris Johnson dilly-dallied around, he didn't really fire him. He, he didn't take decisive leadership. He said on Friday the matter was closed. And then basically all the MPs and, and the public went a little bit crazy. I think it was one of those kind of Dominic Cummings-esque style issues with the Barnard Castle visit where it really was seeping into the public consciousness. And I say that because I got about 30 different boomer memes on WhatsApp. Yeah. Just... So it hit two, It hit like the two strands of social media, which you cannot afford to hit if you're a political crisis. It hit the Instagram stories of millennials, which is like, Ooh. that's you know, that's where BLM turned up. That's where... That's where some, you know, lots of the other like environmental memes, Extinction Rebellion, turn up. But it also hit the WhatsApp groups, private WhatsApp groups sending memes independently. Now, don't get me wrong, I recognize the origin of some of the memes that were sent to me by some other, but they came from me, they came back to us into the political world from normal people. And that's the real, that's when you know you've got cut through. Yeah, my 
Essex Lads WhatsApp and chat basically started posting memes about this almost straight away. And from that moment, I knew, well, the Tories obviously very desperate, as always, to hold on to their burgeoning youth vote. And they just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't let this stand. Yeah, I, I think it was completely inevitable. And I, it kind of surprised me that Boris did come forward and say that he considered that the matter closed, at least initially. Now, I suppose that's just due process. No, I'm not sure it is. I, I think what happened was Boris found out about the infidelity and Boris, knowing that his own track record on fidelity is pretty dodgy, was sat there going like, look, what's the crime? He just loved another woman. That's not a crime. And then it was like, and then the sort of the story seeped out because I know the story seeped out overnight, like from for like three or four in the morning when I got the first message on that thing that the real story is like that it's been going on a long time and longer than the like before the appointment period. At least that's the rumor. So therefore, that the, the the choice to give her the public like publicly paid role as a non executive director in that department was a personal interest matter that wasn't declared, and so that becomes a real problem for the prime minister. So I think at first he's like, "This is all about fidelity," and then he realizes that that matter of trust isn't just between Matt and his wife, but there's more than three people in this marriage, you know, <laughs> uh, and that's the real problem for the whole political class. And therefore, the ch- and so the mood music changes. It changes very quickly, but it does importantly change in a, t- in a chronological manner throughout the crisis. Well, of course, so the other issue that particularly took up the public debate, though, was the hypocrisy. And I think that's what really stings politicians in the end. It was the fact that this is Matt Hancock, the one who's been telling us to keep our distance and follow the rules, but him, he was, he was breaking the guidance and, and potentially breaking the law as well. But of course, this wasn't the first time Hancock has, has broken the guidance. Everyone's stood a little bit too close to each other over, over the last year. So, of course, it's the smut that, that really pushes it forward. I suppose that kind of raises the question in my head. Let's say um, Hancock wasn't in the middle of a global pandemic and Hancock was not giving special privileges, allegedly, to his aide and promoting her. Would an affair be justification to call for a Secretary of State sacking? For me, probably yes. And I take a perhaps slightly unusual old-fashioned view on this because I don't tend to for, for most issues. But in terms of whether it actually led to his resignation or not, I honestly think that the social distancing stuff was was seasoning and that even if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, the public clamour for him to resign would still be pretty high. And I think that Obviously, we see a lot of these comments from people who were very annoyed and rightly so at the hypocrisy of it all and the fact that, you know, people who weren't able to see their elderly relatives, etc., and made great sacrifices during the pandemic and continue to do so in some cases, they have every right to be irritated at the social distancing side of things. But at the end of the day, I think most people in the UK are still pretty put off, especially and. To be honest here, it's unlike the Prime Minister, Matt Hancock doesn't really have much leeway in this. He hasn't got the the sort of personality that people in general will tend to brush off any sort of what? smarter. Absolutely not. Matt Matt is the Teflon man. You gotta get a single thing. He's he's deemed to be one of the nice guys of Westminster, and therefore it doesn't matter what he does or what he says, nothing nothing touches him. And Theresa May, for example, had a bit of a like had a long running vendetta against Matt despite but she had to keep promoting him because he he was like because he was seen as well liked and well nice and it was actually one of those things you quite often hear from journalists and pundits and the other and the like staffers around he's a really nice guy and he's really well-meaning 
Um, and those are the kind of people that actually, if you're like really after effectiveness in public in public life, is like a real problem because it's like it's like you, how do you deal with the fact that just because someone's nice that they're given a free pass? Yeah. And I think he'd be given a free pass by the public on this because the public social mores have changed. So uh, like uh, this weekend, I'm going to my friend's wedding. It's one of my like favorite friends. He's like one of the greatest guys I know. And I've been thinking about marriage quite a lot recently because my all of my old housemates now are either married or got engaged. Like, the last one got engaged a week and a bit ago. And it leaves me and a producer friend of mine who works at Times Radio, the only people in our set that aren't married. Maybe you just have to marry each other, Matt. I think it's going to have to be a marriage of convenience between between me and uh, Poppy Bullard at Times Radio. Uh, but like... You heard it here first. <laughs> Poppy doesn't even know either. Uh, but anyway, the, so I've been thinking about it. I think about like the, what it means, right? And it effectively what, like, obviously all the ceremony, the God, the, the etc. is like very important to lots of people. The, the really interesting thing for me is what it, it, what it physically is as an act which is two people standing in front of a lot of other people, their best friends, all of the people that they consider their good counsel, um, their guiders, their, their mentors, their, their you know, literal kith and kin. And they're saying to them, I promise. They're saying, my word is my bond to this other person. And they're, then they're saying, and then they're saying that I will sign this contract. And they literally sign a contract that says that I will do this forever and they say it quite often, or all the time anymore, but quite often, on on the basis of their entire human soul to some ethical, like, ethereal being, right? And that is a very strange concept because nothing else like that happens in, in real life. It also is a totally bizarre concept because they say this because they literally stand up in front of these people and say, I am in a position of, like, total love and abject love, which means that I'm in a non-normal mental state. Uh, and then I'm signing a contract that gets rid of all of my assets in perpetuity to some other person. You wouldn't be able to do that contract in any other circumstance in any other way like that. And but it's like, like basically, therefore, the fidelity thing really matters because if he does break that contract, which that's what um, screwing around does, then you are saying that you have broken that con- you have broken your trust in front of 200 other people or so. And that's really like, a, that's a fascinating thing for them. Like, that's why it really resonates with the public. That's why the public got incensed about it, about and care about affairs, because affairs of the heart do matter um, when it's about, when you can't trust the person who's making that call. Now, but whether the, actually that still stands because lots of people break it and therefore there's a norm that we've created in our society, maybe an Eleanor Ostrom style norm that actually, this saying I I'm to be trusted doesn't matter. Whereas, you know, me saying I shouldn't be trusted on like a bank account or whatever uh, does really matter. It's a very strange scenario of, of social norm that we've got ourselves into. Of course, it would be a bit hypocritical though of the prime minister to sack Matt Hancock for infidelity, because of course, if, if we, if we were to say breaking your marriage, it makes you disqualified from public office. Then I think it would be quite a lot of people out of public office. I, I don't think it necessarily follows that you're no longer able to do your job in politics. It might mean the public trusts you less and it might mean they don't, aren't willing to vote for you. But clearly that hasn't really happened for Boris because he was getting a divorce at the time he, he became prime minister. So it, it doesn't seem like that's the, the be all and end all. It's true. And I mean, especially marriage, marriage is, of course, and all relationships are in a, in a way, TripAdvisor ratings. Having a relationship is a good TripAdvisor rating to other people 
who are looking at someone, right? Because they get to sit there and say, oh, they are, they're reliable. They're well liked by this one other person. And that's a pretty good five star rating uh, you get for like being in a long term relationship. And that becomes actually weirdly like enticing to other people who are looking for a mate, right? Uh, because uh, because it's, it's someone is sitting there. It's like having children is like quite evolutionary terms. Um, quite attractive to other people who want to have children because you're proven literally that you can make them. Um, so it's like marriage in the, in that respect creates its own demise uh, for a lot of the time, and therefore people make allowances, knowing as well, of course, that they've made mistakes themselves. And I think that's what's become the norm. I think you're right in terms of Boris; it would be very difficult for Boris to do it. I think the public, especially the, the and it's still a majority, the majority of the public that are married and haven't had an affair and broken their vows and like had them found out do expect you know at least at least the um what's the phrase the the cardinal rule of of, of breaking your promises that you know don't get caught um and that's and that's what you didn't manage to do yeah don't get caught in such a, a public way it's nice to see that the great british public respecting contract as an important libertarian principle there <laughs> i think you, you just illustrated matt how the kind of Teflon man thing doesn't work for Matt when it comes to a thing that directly impugns on this image of him as being, you know, the nice guy of Westminster, the good guy, Matt. And Hancock. he is a nice guy and he is well-meaning and he's like, he really does care. I think that's, right. that's it's reasonable to say. And, and that's that's precisely, I think, why the, the optics of this are even worse for him than they would be for, say, for, say Boris, who has perhaps a slightly different reputation. We've already dis- discounted Boris's cheating. I think that's probably right. It's like a Donald Trump syndrome, isn't it? Where we just yeah. accept these, these people aren't good people and then we, we move on. Whilst for a lot of other politicians, they don't really get that privilege. I, I think it's probably worth kind of stepping back on thinking about putting aside his, his infidelity. Shouldn't Matt Hancock be continuing on as health secretary in any case? Uh, we saw Dominic Cummings saying that he lied 10 to 15 times, that he was actually quite unhelpful and self-obsessed during the, the key moments of the pandemic. He really screwed up testing and tracing. There was no plan uh, for lockdown or any real ability to, to deal. And he kept in claim that there was. Really, was Hancock's downfall in that sense inevitable? I mean, in my mind, I think he was, he was most likely to be the full guy at the inquiry next year because somebody needs to be blamed and you know he has to be put out. He's, he's already fallen on his own sword for other reasons. Has, has this then perhaps even saved his reputation because he doesn't get fired for incompetency anymore? He just gets fired for non-policy reasons, I suppose. Yeah, very savvy political operator to, to get fired for, for that as opposed to his actual record in office. Listen, I think that Hancock has got definitely a, a mixed record on the pandemic. But from also from the free market perspective, I think just more generally here, and this is pre-pandemic and, and completely unrelated to, to COVID policy, he is the arch nanny statist in a lot of ways. You know, he has been at the center of all these different calls over the past couple of years, alongside obviously Boris's Damascene conversion on some of this stuff, uh, the ad ban, the anti-obesity stuff, all the ways that our lives are continuing to be restricted. He did pull through on medical cannabis, although I think pretty much anyone else in his position facing the public pressure that he did would would have had to do something very similar. But just completely taking COVID aside for a moment, I think that his record has been pretty, pretty shocking. And a lot of the time different from how uh, other Tories would have acted in his position. Matt, you're a big fan of Matt Hancock, aren't you? I, I think that Matthew is a, you know, is a very well-meaning and very well-intentioned man. 
Um, and it directed it, his energy is incredible. And I think that if you if you directed it in the right thing, it would have been he would have great impact and great uh, and and a great your positive impact. The health secretary at this time was not the right role, and you know the hundred twenty seven thousand Brits that died during the pandemic during the first, second, and third waves are kind of an attest to that, um, because the, the the role of the health secretary at this time was to be the gatekeeper of information and being a gatekeeper of a novel virus spreading around the world is an incredibly important role that requires like all of the right processes and structures to be in place and that hadn't been sorted out and that had just been assumed to be in the good way and in many respects therefore was missed um i would say however that we should take that we should sit there and say you know a lot of politics right now has to be seen, especially political battles in Westminster, the psychodramas currently in Westminster, is all part of a larger psychodrama between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. And therefore, Matt, as you say, Dan, actually, really interestingly, he was going to be the full guy. So take this, take take the position that next year, when there's an inquiry, they've taken out the full guy. Or it, like Dominic has taken out the full guy, which means that who's going to be the full guy there's no one there, right? So who does Boris get to blame and who does he get to sack? Well, he doesn't now. Surely he, he gets to say, we've already dealt with the problem. We've already dealt, there's already been a full guy. Uh, he's already gone. The, the cabinet secretary is also already gone. Mate, the guy loves body chess. Do you think he hasn't already thought that like, like Boris will just try and like rough it out himself? Clearly Dominic wanted to get rid of Matt. Who knows really? uh, who helps leak the tape? Uh, but like, I, think I could hazard three guesses. Um, but I think the interesting one, for, I mean, obviously we don't actually know. And everybody's being blamed for the Russians to the, to the Chinese, to a disgruntled security guard and, and so on. Although there was something really interesting in the Sun's analysis. Actually, sorry, a Sun reporter in the New Statesman saying how they'd got the tape. And she said that one of their reporters was sent to an office to check out the tape. Now, that's really strange because... Like, like, who has an office to go and look at? Like, not that's that's not a random guard. That's not a random security guard, is it? That's like that. No one has like that means that somebody official who owns an office who, around here in Westminster got hold of it by a means, and that's not. And it just seems that that's very professional, which which strikes me as that it makes it unlikely that it was just a disgruntled employee of the Department for Health. Just looking forward, I'm interested, of course, Sajid Javid is the new health secretary. He's, he's been previously associated quite heavily with free market circles. He's got quite a long history in cabinet with a lot of different positions. What, what kind of health secretary do we expect him to be? Is he going to be much different from Hancock or is the NHS just a machine that, that acts on its own accord and it doesn't really matter who the figurehead is at any given time? So this is what, well, that's the thing, like what Cummings' response to Matt Hancock during the inquiry last month was really fascinating because he blamed a lot of it on the man, the individual. But it, but the problem is that the same result was achieved in the UK, whether you were Jane Freeman of the SNP up in Scotland, whether you were Vaughan Gething in Wales and under Welsh Labour, whether you were Matthew Hancock here in uh, Westminster. It's not the individual. The structures and the incentives of the institutions of public health and the Department for Health um, are so wrong in this country of our nationalized, over-centralized, bureaucratic, sclerotic state that prioritizes the, all the wrong things, you know, move, like keeping movement of international travel going whilst like shutting down the ability to sit on a park bench. Like, these are mental decisions that we were putting in place like 
last year. And the number of times, Matt, you and I and Dan, who must have sat there like banging our heads against the wall at the beginning of the pandemic going like, why are you not getting private labs involved? Why are you not getting universities and charities involved? And they just, they were just, and it was because they just genuinely like had, were getting it totally dumbly wrong. Uh, and it, because like because they got this, they they got what a problem or what I I call repeater institutions mentality. So one person says this is what happens, and then the Royal College of Nursing repeats that, and therefore the BMJ repeats that, therefore the hospitals repeat that, and they repeat it, and they actually increase uh, the level of authority of the message, even though you know washing your hands has nothing to do with getting rid of the or reducing the transmission of this virus. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you're saying that ultimately the individual here in the Hancock's position isn't the most important thing. And what the real issue is with UK health in general, health, public health bodies, is that it's such an unaccountable, largely centralised bureaucracy. I mean, if you look at the kind of arm's length bodies in the Department of Health, there's, I think, nearly 30 of them. And most of them don't directly come under the remit or authority of the Secretary of State for Health. So it's, it's just not, <laughs> it's, it, it's not something that any individual is likely to be able to make as much of a significant impact on, regardless of whether they have the best will in the world, if they have the, the best ideas for reform in, in various areas. Uh, although the only thing I'll say on our new Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, is that I saw in uh, Guido Fawkes earlier, today that it looks like he's already given up uh, even an occasional cigarette in response to getting this new position, which for me is definitely a very bad sign because it suggests that he's just as concerned with the, the lovely tobacco control optics and, and whatnot as anyone else in his position would be. He, he, he actually had a go, right, because he was, he was in the chamber and he wasn't wearing his NHS badge, you know, Matt Hancock's NHS badge. For shame. And so, and they, but like, this is just the same bauble. Giving up cigarettes to be seen to be pious is the same as wearing that NHS badge. And I thought that, like, you know, he made a big thing about not wearing it, actually. He made a good tweet that was like, we're about delivery results, not about, you know, signs and, like, symbolism. Um, but it turns out, actually, nah, nah. That's that's exactly what it's all about here. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I can't see Sajid Javid as a particularly reforming health minister, particularly because there's not much interest within this government of reforming the NHS. They just want to put a, on a pedestal, give it more money and, and don't actually do any of the institutional structural reforms that are necessary. And you're going to end up with the same the same failures and, and the same issues in future. So I, I don't think there's much reason to be particularly optimistic. And I, I don't think Saj is much of a re- reforming minister in this respect. Um, although I think it's time in talking of uh, reform and uh, trying to improve things to move on to a chat about e-scooters. <music> E-scooters are back in the news as cities across the country introduce trial rental schemes. But according to the insurance company Admiral, the number of crashes has skyrocketed by 395% in the last year, although with some absolute numbers increasing from 20 to 99 accidents, just to put that in a bit more context. But this has inevitably, some might say, led to calls to roll back some of the trial schemes for e-scooters in the UK. I guess to start with you, Lesh, uh, e-scooters a menace or should we actually embrace this new technology for the wonderful benefits that it will bring? Very neutral question to start. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I think it won't surprise you to hear that I think e-scooters are an extraordinarily positive technology. They help people get around cities a little more easily. They're environmentally friendly. 
Uh, they are absolutely fun if you've ever if you've ever gotten onto one, and ultimately it's about to people to decide whether or not they want to jump on to an e-scooter or a bicycle or a car or a train or whatever mode of transport they use. It's really just about having those different opportunities. Have you been on one? I have been. I have been on an e-scooter uh, a few times. Actually, not yet in London because sadly the rental schemes in London don't include my borough. There are some other parts of London, um, so I haven't I haven't been able to use them locally just yet. But hopefully, I will again soon um it's it's worth noting just on the the safety point here that seems to be raised a lot you're going to see more accidents of e-scooters involving e-scooters as there are more of them around i mean that's just a simple fact it's it's kind of meaningless to say that accidents have increased by 400 percent if usage of e-scooters is increased by twenty thousand percent that means they're actually getting safer so i think it's just important to put these things into perspective you're going to get also i think a number of accidents in the early stages of an e-scooter rollout because the the first time people get on them they're more likely to have an accident because they don't really know how to use them it takes some time for cars to get used to the fact that e-scooters exist you know they know they're on the road. So th- there are going to be some teething issues to sort out and there's going to be some regulatory issues that we need to sort out. But overall, I think e-scooters are a very positive story and they're very popular and they're very widely used, even as part of these very limited rental schemes at the moment. Yeah, and I would say that a lot of the people who use e-scooters right now are most likely to be the most reckless drivers of the things, right? It's like how, because they're illegal. It's like if you are on a, a scooter, which is itself illegal, you're highly likely to be a risk-taking individual. And therefore, you're highly likely to be taking risk-taking, risky behavior on the street. So it's a very strange way to do the straight-up analysis of this kind of transport versus this kind of transport versus this one, when they're not the same drivers. Also, the police at the moment across central London keep stopping everybody who has a scooter that's not one of the official schemes, partly because they've been told to by the Met, but partly because they also know that it's exactly the way in which all of the drugs gangs across London are distributing the drugs. Because drug dealers are, you know, just like everybody else, they want to avoid COVID situations uh, and an open, uh, you know, a quick, a quick way of getting around, which allows you to scoot around, get away, um, but also, and which is foldable and, and disposable, but also keeps you nice in the open air and away from COVID situations. Uh, that, you know, that appeals to them just as much as it does to anybody else. Oh my. But that means, therefore, that they've created a sitting target on their, on their backs because, again, like the police just sit there and go, well, stop him, and and like, and it's an easy catch, right? It's you know, it's kind of like that salmon fishing. You see the bears with salmon fishing in, in in sort of February or January or February, and everyone's like, "Why are they stopping so many?" And I'm like, "Yeah, well, it's really rather reasonable actually right now, although unreasonable if you you know want to have drug reform, which we of course do." <laughs> so I guess it's probably worth just setting out how exactly the UK does treat them at the moment because. They're, whilst they are illegal in most circumstances, obviously there's these trial schemes and there's also some exemptions depending on where you ride them. So what are the actual rules around them for all of our e-scooter loving and riding listeners out there? And what are our kind of plans to change them as they get introduced more and more? Yeah, so the UK is very unique in the sense in which um, privately owned e-scooters are not legally be able to be ridden um, on roads or pavements or bicycle paths or anywhere on public areas because there's a bit of a category error here. Because they, they have a motor in them, um, the, the law basically considers them like a motor vehicle. So because they're not registered and they're not able to fulfill the requirements of a motor vehicle or a bicycle or a um, motorbike, sorry, they, they actually can't legally be used on, on streets um, in the UK. You can only use them, at least privately owned ones, on your own property. On the other hand, though, the government decided that they, rather than 
just legalizing the devices as they are practically legal everywhere else in the world. They instead are putting these requirements to have a rental scheme. So you can basically like one of those mobile bikes or, or kind of like a Boris bike, except Oculus, which is you can walk up to it, scan it on your mobile phone, unlock it, and then you can ride those legally, not on footpaths, but on cycle paths and roads. So the only e-scooters that are legal in the UK are through these very limited rental schemes. It can only be used in some places. They're very limited in terms of speed limits. There's, there's all these safety requirements you've got to have a driver's license to use them as well so at the moment we're we're very much limiting them and i think that kind of feeds the point matt's saying which is the fact that there is no rules at the moment about using personally owned e-scooters means that there's a lot more reckless behavior going on there's no rules that say well don't use it on pavements but you can legally use it on on the on the road you can legally use it on cycle paths i think that would actually fix up a lot of issues because i think people do genuinely have a, a problem with e-scooters that whizzing past them just like you would have if there's a bicycle on the footpath and you're trying to walk along there's some very reasonable complaints and there's going to be some more accidents at the moment because we haven't legalized them and because we don't have a clear set of rules and uh, the government's put out some papers about this and they've been talking about it for many years and they're saying it's going all very fast and they're very excited about it it's absolutely nonsense. The rest of the world's had e-scooters for almost five years and the UK is so extraordinarily behind when it comes to legalising them. And we're just suddenly realising that we've got to sort out all these issues. I, I'm not really sure at the moment what the plans are for legalising them, but there's talk about requiring insurance and, or helmets or speed limits or something like that, but they just haven't quite figured out um, how they're going to legalise them for private use and, and what kind of registration or whatever they're going to put on them. Now, I don't think any of that's really necessary because... Um, we should be treating them like bicycles because they have a similar risk to bicycles in terms of accidents and they, they have a similar kind of station on the road and they go kind of similar speeds, if not slower than bicycles. In one sense, they're actually safer than bicycles, which is that um, you can't get entangled in the frame of an e-scooter. Like you can get entangled in a frame of a bicycle and they certainly go slower um, in most cases than bicycles. So it, it, realistically, the international evidence is that treat them like bicycles, be reasonable and open to them. Um, sadly, the UK is just a few years behind in this respect. When was the last time you heard of somebody getting tangled in the frame of a bicycle? Matthew? That has happened to me with with my lanky, gangly legs. I have several times, actually, in my youth. I forget that you're basically Mr. Tickle. <laughs> I actually fell through the middle of the bicycle spoke. It's that risk, though, Matt, when you crush, <laughs> when you crush a bicycle that it, you can get stuck and trapped in between the metal. Oh, yeah, because Duncan from the Taxpayers Alliance had this the other day. Right? He got trapped, yeah, under the lorry. And I, I mean, and it was somebody who, a good friend of ours who, who got, got killed by a lorry in, um, on a bike crash uh, in uh, Washington. And so we do have to get a grip of like the, the liability and how the risk profiles work and, and therefore like as well set those rules. The thing is, like, if, if we don't set rules, norms will be created. But if we allow the norms to be created, we'll impinge on the rights of, of the thoroughfare, of the pavement, um, the footway, the, like for various people who are disabled, elderly, who, who need to have you know, a, a, a safe and, 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 and good passage through. And therefore, we, we should really create those rules. I think that's where the onus on, on creating rules rather than you know, just allowing norms to create, be created instead comes mm. in. Um, the, the interesting thing for me, though, is that actually we're thinking about this, like how are we thinking, you're thinking about this, like about bikes, Matt, and about individual rights um, and like how that reflects on the, on the, on the, on, in regulation. The, the interesting thing for me is that that's not how policymakers in the UK are thinking. So five years ago, they were thinking like you, like think how can we do this on an individual basis? Um, they obviously, they actually came into problem because, um, who owns the pavements in the UK and therefore who has liability for like accidents that happen on them um, is really interesting and actually has a really long and established case law, like a, a very, a very varied case law. There's 
things about like when you've grit outside your house, you've done some work on the house on the on the pavement, and therefore if someone slips on it, that's you. But it's you know it's not your property, so you can't just dig it up. But then like and even things like um, pavements because they're quite old in the UK, they're not all of a certain uniform length, certain uniform height as they are in the United States. There aren't ramps on and ramps off of a regulated form, and therefore you don't have that regularity underlying that allows you to sort of like make easy rules based on liability now the the interesting thing from that is that we then have how policymakers are currently thinking about e-scooters and that's with an eye on the next level of fleet of electric vehicles which are autonomous vehicles because they think how can we make sure that there are places where there's lots of charging already happening to where we can start to build substations, getting the electricity in for the like for the which we'll need to have like electric cars on mass, and then on top of that, how you create the insurance systems that allow competing existing levels of fleets, um, which will probably replace the individual car ownership that we see today. And that's really so. Like we have to think about this both as like both right now individual rights, but also how policymakers are thinking about this for ten years down the line. I think we have to consider how there's a few different things at play here and depending on how quickly each of them proceed as to whether the UK will end up being a haven for e-scooters and a successful one and it's the first off the speed of people simply getting used to the new technology and I mean you know you look at the initial stories of road accidents from from cars from automobiles I think the first one was in the 1890s and the UK where a woman was run over from someone driving at a frightening speed of, of eight miles per hour or something along those lines and of course people you know you can throw mortality statistics in comparison to bikes or accident statistics in comparison to established forms of transport people but at the end of the day you're not going to be able to get over that hurdle with people until it's more of an established technology in their minds you know people don't tend to think of things sadly in my opinion in in such a raw utilitarian calculus sort of form they 100% should and obviously the amount of benefits that e-scooters can give in terms of environmental and just convenience for getting around and stuff should cannot be overstated it could could be absolutely massive so you've got the these two kind of forces that are working against each other it just depends if, if people's perceptions of this as a fairly safe technology in comparison to alternatives uh, ends up being as fast as politicians will to potentially regulate these out of existence and so far at least although the uk has been slow it looks like we're going in the right direction albeit far too slowly it's it's worth noting as you've kind of identified correctly there daniel that basically every technology get this kind of instinctive opposition if you go read what people saying about bicycles in the 19th century it was these uh, dangerous fast-paced items on the road that are causing disruption some people of course will still have that opinion and then, yeah, I was about to say, if you read about what people say in the 21st century, it's not actually all that different. <laughs> in any case, what, what we ultimately say is, in, in, in when it comes to e-scooters, most of the danger to e-scooter and e-scooter accidents is to the individual on the e-scooter. And therefore, it's a question of the risk that you're willing to take as an individual. Now, when it starts impacting on other people, that's when you need kind of clear and consistent rules. And I don't think even the United Smith Institute accepts that you do need some kind of... We don't accept unlimited liability to fall onto external yes. parties of a transaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And until we until we privatize the roads, unfortunately, the government's going to have to be involved in deciding uh, the, the the different conflicting claims on the road. And I think it's ultimately going to take a little bit of time, as, as you've said, Daniel, to try to figure out these complexities and, and negotiate different uses. And it, it's just it's just in my mind, it's just a shame that we've, we've taken so long to get started. 
um, and and the government was so slow. And this kind of just goes back to the idea in my head of permissionless innovation. It's a question of do you take a precautionary principle approach where you just assume you don't legalize something until you can ensure that there are no risks whatsoever and therefore you don't get any of the benefits of the in- innovation? Or do you take a permissionless innovation approach where you do allow people to try out new things and then you try to figure out as it's going on, what the problems are and deal with any regulatory requirements um, that come out of that. And unfortunately, it seems like we've taken a bit more of a precautionary approach to e-scooters, which has slowed down that kind of evolutionary process of figuring out what the problems actually are going to be in practice. And and I think that the Department of Transport's kind of very conservative approach to this and very slow approach to this hasn't really stopped there being issues. It's just we've just pushed the issues into the future and we've ended up with a kind of nonsensical framework. So I, I think it'll just be a matter of of legalizing it and, and, and going from there and figuring it out rather than this kind of opposite, very conservative approach. Well, away from the massive controversy of e-scooters, I think it's time to move on to more of a safe haven of a topic. And that will be the recent proposals for offshore asylum processing. Home Secretary Priti Patel is set to introduce new laws to allow the government to send asylum seekers abroad for processing with a potential centre located in Africa. Dan, is offshore processing a humane solution to discourage asylum seekers making a risky trip across the channel? Uh, You'll be shocked to learn that I don't think it is a particularly humane solution, especially when uh, you have potential offshore facilities located so far away from the UK. You've definitely got potential issues around oversight for conditions in those sort of areas. But I think more than that, the, the basic premise of this, that it's going to stop people making risky trips across the channel is just not very well founded at all. Um, It misunderstands why it is that people make these trips and why they go to specifically the country that they'd like to seek asylum in. Um, And for a lot of politicians and a lot of people involved in this space, the obvious answer is, well, they're coming for pull factors. The UK is a fantastic place to live. um, And I will say that as obviously very true uh, and that's why people are coming because they they want to immediately come to the UK because of the economic benefits and things like that whereas most of the time uh, and we have to remember that the vast majority the overwhelming majority of asylum seekers are are legitimate in their concerns and they think that they have a, a very good right to claim asylum they do it because they're being pushed they're being pushed out of a country whether it's through war or whether it's through famine or whether it's through any number of of reasons um and they have every right to pick the uk as a potential destination for their claim to asylum it does seem like pretty though is is very much modeling this approach on australia's um very harsh policy when it comes to to irregular maritime arrivals as they're sometimes called or or boat people less uh, politically correctly um, and and that's that's a whole raft of measures it's not just offshore processing which has probably gotten the most criticism but it's also things like turning around boats it's also kind of a, a regional solution so it's working with the Indonesian authorities to try to prevent people from getting onto boats in the first place I think there's a there is a moral case for doing what you can to discourage people smugglers which is what the channel crossing represented and it's also what it represented going to Australia and Australia's case is actually a lot more dangerous and a lot of there were actually quite a lot of boats that were sinking from Indonesia on the way to Australia and hundreds of asylum seekers were probably dying along the way so the, the question of pull and push factors is kind of interesting one and we've had the same debate in Australia and I'm not convinced that it's just push factors I think there are big push factors the reason why people are entering Europe but surely there's got to be some pull that is leading them not only to enter Europe, but make a journey across Europe 
getting to France and then getting on a boat to the UK. There's a lot of countries that maybe not as good as the UK, but are perfectly safe, secure places that they could have sought asylum. And, and they've chosen to, rather than seeking asylum at their first point of safe call, they've, they've decided to do something actually quite dangerous. So perhaps there is a bigger pull into the UK. And I think the UK should be proud of the fact that people want to make the UK home. But at the same time, I, I do worry that um, you, you don't want to encourage that that trade in people. I mean, like, you know, Rendang is a good push factor. Like, frankly, I would rather go for a pie in Australia than some of the food that you get on, on some of the islands. However, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the biggest thing for me is, is this as big an issue for Brits as it is always sort of portrayed as being? Or is this a dead cat, uh, like, strategy to deflect uh, from other stories that like to make people concerned of and and to get like the left incensed about um and therefore spend lots and lots of time and 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 lots and lots of paper and lots and lots of journalists efforts <clears throat> on on examining like your you know pretty patel's approach to something that we know in the general populace is relatively easy it's an easy sell um is you know having secure borders and standing up for britain and all this kind of stuff and is it like, is it really the kind of thing that actually matters in terms of like how much like effort and time is spent on it? And I think like, you know, when we think about some of the people who have been asylum seekers into the UK in the past few years, um, you have to include things like Malala from Pakistan. You have to include things like Nathan Law from Hong Kong. So they're, aren't, they, aren't they very different? They're, they're kind of organized asylum seeker arrivals versus ones who are arriving unpredictably by boat. And that has a very different psychological impact. I would make a huge, a huge argument that actually the the, the left wing response from from like Portland, Oregon, and and other parts of the United States that there's no such thing as an illegal immigrant really actually like from my point of view actually I really disagree with it uh, because there are legal and illegal ways of entering a country and therefore like the act of someone entering way delegitimizes various people who actually have very legitimate concerns and there are people from Afghanistan who are in fear of their life people from Sudan who are in fear of their life from regimes that want to see them killed people who from Uganda for example who who are gay who actually do deserve a safe haven and that's what and many people are very willing and many Brits are very welcoming of people who have legitimate concerns they get very worried when it actually gets is about economic concerns and we see things like albanians joining going up to germany um pretending that they're syrian relying actually on you know many on our in our lack of knowledge and, and in some respects you know our, 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 our sort of quite specious groupings together of various sort of foreigns um as being one to to get through the net and therefore therefore harming people who have a real legitimate case uh, for to get, to be given safety. Yeah, I th- I think just to to answer a couple of things that you raised there, Lesh, on specifically, well, that there are obviously some pull factors as well as push. I think that's true, but we have to put the main ones that people talk about in context. And the first is the kind of idea of asylum shopping. So people going specifically to the UK because of say its generous benefit system or the possibility of you know being able to be put up at the taxpayer's expense. I think that this is probably just not the case, and there's quite good evidence why it's not the case. Um, and that is that if you look at surveys of people who are considering or who have already um, been seeking asylum in the UK, most of them aren't aware that there's a work ban and quite a quite strict work ban for quite a significant amount of time while their asylum claims are processed, hence the ASI's involvement in the, the lift the ban 
campaign uh, you know 12 months you have to wait before you can get a job and you can only get a job from uh, the government's shortage occupation list which has all the the fun things of saying you can be a ballerina of course that's absolutely fine um but but you can't be x y and Z. So there's, there's there's not a shortage of ballerinas at the moment, Dan. Oh, actually, as a fan of ballet, no, no I'm not a fan of ballet, sadly. Um, but maybe one day. But yeah, there's the survey evidence that asylum seekers in general aren't actually aware that they aren't able to get a job when they come to the UK, and they assume, I think, pretty reasonably that well, anywhere they go, they're going to end up having to work in order to support themselves and their families. But the other one here, and this is brought up, I think, even more frequently, is that well you know, France is just across the channel. So why would, when you're in France, a perfectly safe Western European um, prosperous country, why would you then make that trip across the channel? And it's true that France is certainly a damn sight better, um, uh, orders of magnitude better than wherever these people... Oh, I thought you meant than England. <laughs> I was like, I was like, Daniel, <laughs> no, this is blasphemy. No, no danger of ever saying that, mate. No danger at all. We have to consider what the situation in northern France has been like for, for quite a number of years now, um, for, for decades, in fact. You've got what is ultimately a standing population of, of migrants or asylum seekers that in many cases are living in destitution. They're often in pretty informal camps um, that sometimes lack basic hygiene or shelter. Um, the French attitude towards the people residing in these camps has been... Uh, mixed if i'm to to be optimistic about this and and put a spin on it obviously you know there's a high risk of being preyed on by criminal gangs or in case people smugglers here so i think we have to remember that even for those that that come through france there is still i think quite a, a legitimate pull factor as it were for making that channel crossing um, or if, even if there's not, there's often the, the risk of being preyed on by people smugglers. It's true. And I think, the, you know, when we talk about boat people, we should we should talk about, we should, we should remember, of course, one of the most famous boat people in history, which actually makes his way into Ronald Reagan's farewell address. And it's one of the, you know, one of the free Vietnamese who is on a, one of the famously, the Vietnamese became boat people, which is where the phrase um, ironically comes from in the, in, for Australia in, in a kind of sort of like grotesque, uh, roundabout way um, but he he looks up at a, at a passing american ship and the american sailor looks down and uh the, the 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 guy on the boat says hello freedom man and it, it's an image that he could not get out of his mind as he wrote home to his mother and then ronald reagan himself then could not get out of his mind and it became part of his ethos for why he said that America had to be the shining city on the hill, and that if it had to have walls, that the walls would have doors, and if those doors were to be there, that they should be open, and with anyone for anyone, with the wherewithal and ability to get there. Um, and, they, and he said that they must make it as easy as possible for those tired, huddled masses yearning to be free to get to that shining city on the hill. And so asylum seekers are not just some, um, athe- you know, some, some, some extra person on the sidelines. Um, they're part of the very foundation of our way of life and, and, and the meaning of why we're proud to be in a Western state, why we're proud to be um, a, you know, a free state, uh, because people choose to be free. And that's, part of the, that's a real joy for us. We should be very proud of that. And that's why I think we're, you know, we should be very proud of the asylum seekers who come to the UK, make such a massive difference. There's a certain irony that the strongest advocates for asylum seekers are the same people who typically say Britain is a racist, terrible, awful country. And yet, for some reason, people are literally risking their lives to escape their country and, and try to 
come over to the West. But I just want to go back to, yeah, to your earlier point, Matt, about the extent to which this is a real issue. Are channel costs something to worry about? And I think people who say that it's not have a, have a strong case to make in, in numerical terms. It is a relatively small number of people crossing the channel. It should be relatively unthreatening. But, and this is where I think it's quite important, it's often misunderstood, is that it clearly drives a lot of anger and a lot of frustration um, amongst the, the general public. And I think we've seen that with Nigel Farage you know, going onto the border and, and doing his live reporting and whatever else. There's clearly an audience. There's clearly a lot of interest in it. And I think that's fundamentally because it hits onto this idea that the, the tribe or the nation is, is under attack, it's under threat. And we're, if you're a country that's unable to control their borders, unable to decide who comes to their country, uh, is one that is, has lost all control of it, its immigration system. And then that kind of um, triggers what um, has been traditionally called an authoritarian instinct, which makes people more closed. That, that sense of threat makes you more closed. You want, you want less openness, you want less trade, you want less immigration. And that's where I think advocates for more immigration and more trade need to be very careful. I think John Howard, the former Australian Prime Minister, put this very well when he said, we will decide who comes to this country in the circumstances in which they come. And John Howard famously very much stopped the, the, the irregular maritime arrivals, the boat people, but at the same time um, operated one of the most generous immigration systems in the world, proportionally probably twice the size of, of the UK's. I think that points to this important point that it's actually very important if you want to have a generous immigration system, you want to have a lot of asylum seekers. You need a sense that this, this process is controlled, that we know who's coming here, we, we can identify them, they're good people and we want them. And that's something Australia certainly had when it came to Vietnamese rivals, because the Vietnamese rivals didn't go straight to Australia, they actually were regionally processed at the time. And then Australia generously under, under um, Malcolm Fraser offered them asylum to Australia. Uh, and, and many of them moved over. So I think it's that sense in which we, we do want a generous system. We do want to be the, the light on the, the hill and, and we do want people to be able to come to the UK and, and make a contribution. But at the same time, we need to make sure if we want to build popular support for that, that we have a, a very regular flowed immigration system, just like take back control doesn't necessarily mean zero immigrants. It means we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. I actually totally disagree. Um, I think what you need to have is um, the people that people are brought with you. You don't need to have uh, like a, a controlled system at all. Like we don't have a controlled system between Lincoln and London, um, and no one worries about the hordes of Lincoln Bostonites from Lincolnshire coming down. Uh, you know, Boston Brexiteers coming to our Remainer town. Like no one worries about that, right? And and it's but and it's just because we've totally got norm. It's totally normal for someone in your in that country to be able to move around. In fact, it became totally abnormal last year when parts of our country shut their borders unilaterally and quite unconstitutionally, I would say, um, to 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 other parts of other Britons moving between the various constituent parts of the United Kingdom, which actually does contravene Article Four of the of the of the Act of Union. But ignoring that. For a second the, the the question isn't is really about are we are we used to and are we willing to accept um a big change and i've been thinking about time periods like recently uh, because i think you're right matt that like there was a big push to be very very open very very quickly um to people that we weren't necessarily sure we're going to share values we were going to get easily along with that we weren't necessarily sure <clears throat> especially during the sort of like early noughties after 9-11 weren't themselves going to create a security risk that was greater than the security risk they were trying to flee from themselves and therefore were people's generosity creating a, a risk to themselves now that's obviously just as the irish immigration to the uk didn't precipitate 
you know, actual like IRA violence um, and that actually stayed with the nationalists in, in Ireland, actually, predominantly. Um, no, nor did, you know, large, large numbers of Muslims sitting in the UK and larger numbers in large in quite larger numbers, actually, in recent years, um, doesn't precipitate large scale um, terrorist violence for, for caliphates uh, in support of, you know, the caliphate. And that makes that's really interesting for me because that then makes it easier for people to say, actually, we're okay with this migration. We're okay with you bringing your family over. We're okay with you bringing your wife and your mum and your dad and so on, uh, because they become human people again to the people who are involved rather than a topic of discussion in the news. Well, I, th- I think to, to conclude with, with what you mentioned there, Matthew, I honestly think that there's a real chance for some consensus on this idea that actually, if we had a more regularized immigration slash asylum system, then there'd be a lot more public support or a lot more public understanding behind this. You know, I totally understand and respect people on the South Coast who might be concerned about a a large number of people arriving in their town that they haven't been had background checks or anything like that for where they're coming from, etc. And I see that's a perfectly normal and natural human response. I don't think that that's strange at all. But I think one of the things that regardless of where you are on immigration more broadly, or whether you think that we should have more or or less acceptance of uh, refugee numbers in the UK, what we should all be able to agree on is that we need more safe and legal routes for people in order to cut down on this sort of people trafficking and, and people smuggling issue that does contribute to people coming across the the channel in small boats. And this is something that I, I should really stress this because it's important. A lot of the kind of pro-refugee groups, the ones that are, are generally very sympathetic towards more migration in general and very specifically to towards refugees, this is something that they've been campaigning on for years loudly. Uh, and it's important to remember that because they are the ones leading the charge for more safe, regulated legal routes to enter the UK. I mean, if you put yourself in the position of an asylum seeker right now, in most cases, there isn't an application form that you can fill in before you come to the UK to facilitate a safe and legal journey here. The fact is that the Home Office, by and large, expects people to physically reach the UK before they can have an asylum application be lodged. This isn't true in all cases, of course, but it's certainly true in many. And that puts people in a pretty difficult situation, right? They don't have access to safe and legal routes. And that's contributing to some of the problems that people who might be concerned with asylum seekers more broadly have. So hopefully we can start to move towards an approach that satisfies both groups and both sides of this debate, at least in some areas such as that. I think there's then inevitably going to be a bit of a question about how big do, do you have your asylum seeker program and, and how big does it need to be to in, mean that there's no longer a lot of people who still want to move to the West or move to the UK who, who aren't facilitated by that program. Well, on that note, thank you very much for listening to the Adam Smith Institute podcast. You've been listening to myself, Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI and I've been talking with our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as our deputy director, Matt Coyne. Welcome to another Matt Hancock free week. And if you've been enjoying our podcast, please do leave a generous rating and review and subscribe in your chosen podcast provider. And please do tune in again next week for more banter analysis. Mm-hmm.